We are always in awe at the risks farmers and growers take on. This is not a quick gains game, and changes or experimentation can take years of believing you're doing the right thing, with little or no agreement from those around you. We share in those learnings and losses here on Farmerama, so thanks for giving your voices, and thanks for listening. This month we hear from farmers who have gone against the grain to work with the landscapes around them, and we learn about how listening to the land has led to flourishing businesses. And we go volunteering with Hannah to learn about inner-city school kids excitedly eating homegrown carrots and how she's managed to keep them entertained by soil. (laughs) So, to kick us off, we're sticking with kids. Goats are boundless creatures, they'll eat almost anything, and sometimes everything, and they're really entertaining to be around. Not always popular in the traditional British diet, but that certainly seems to be changing. Gourmet Goat, based in Borough Market in London, recently won the best street food prize at BBC Food and Farming Awards, which we were at. And I wasn't there, but you two were. Uh, Good time? Um, Yeah, so nice. Amazing. Really good. Lots of... I felt particularly inspired by the whole thing because um, every other award ceremony I've ever been to, I was a bit like drained by the whole thing. But this was energizing to see all these people so humble being rewarded for all their years of work and effort. Yeah, a real, a real celebration of like amazing hard work and, and great food. And innovation. Like most of the people there were really innovative in what they were doing. I particularly liked that pub uh, that... They, it was a farm shop as well. Yeah, they yeah. had so half of the pub they turned into a farm shop. And I just thought that was like, it made so much sense. And, you know, like the local farmers, they'll come in, they'll drop off their beetroot and then go and have a beer. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, how could no one have thought of that before? I think it's a model that could catch on. Definitely. Yeah. Like, it just made so much sense. And uh, goat was on the menu. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, a very tasty gourmet goat. Um, yeah, fantastic. Delicious. Delicious goat. Well, now it's time to hear from another farmer who's making a success of a farm built around goats. My name's Ruth and I'm Harris Farm Meats for me and my five children. I have a small farm outside Straven in South Lanarkshire and we produce Scottish boar goat and we rear traditional and rare breed pigs and produce mutton and lamb. The goat meat's uh, a fantastic meat. Uh, it's not only extremely healthy, low in calories, low in cholesterol, high in vitamins, low in fat, but it's also immensely tasty. It's a, a beautiful meat and the boar goats, originally from South Africa, uh, produce a very tender, tasty meat. It's not It's not in any way tough, it's not in any way overpowering, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful meat. And what I did is I took about two and a half years to find the right quality of boar goats and eventually found them and started uh, Harris Farm Meats. Working with goats, you do need to have a sense of humour. Um, goats are funny, really, really funny. They have fantastic characters and they express themselves in many, many ways. Uh, they talk to you. They talk to you by their actions and you need to be able to read that. 
uh, a good farmer for me must have compassion must have compassion for uh, her animals and must be able to read them really well i need to, i need to know when they're not happy when they're not well and also uh, how to help them and um, and goats they do talk to you very, <laughs> they do talk to you uh, very very loudly um, they've also got great characters and the end product is they produce a very good very good quality meat I don't have a traditional farming background. I didn't go to agricultural college, but I did learn my trade from very experienced farmers and learned it as I experienced it. Every year as a young girl, I used to go up to my uncle's farm, Uncle David, up in the Highlands. He had about 3,000 uh, hill sheep and I'd go up there for the shearing every year and I loved it. My uncle was so good to his animals and he he demanded that his uh, workers totally respected animals. And for me, that's the way the animals should be kept. I plan to grow my business. Um, I would like to start up a farm shop. I've, I've found that opening a farm at the weekends has been very successful. A lot of people in Scotland want really good quality food. Um, they want to know how it was kept. They want to know what it was fed, where it came from. And they want to, more often than not, and the most important thing is they want to know that that animal had the best, best life. Uh, and that's what I can give them. So I do have a lot of people out at the weekends to see my animals and I welcome that. I want people to see where their animals came from and how, how the life they lived. My plans is to open a farm shop eventually and then eventually down the, down the line um, do an educational programme for people with special needs, uh, basic animal husbandry and also um, uh, kind of animal therapy. I think um, animals are fantastic for... Um, people with different support needs and I do have a background in that so I'd be looking to expand that. I got a lot of help setting up the business. I mean there is help out there especially from other producers. Other producers do want to help you out. They they will give you their experience um, and special, especially small producers in Scotland. You know, They want you to succeed. They want Scotland to succeed as a small producer of very very fine foods. Also, the business gateway has been immensely um, supportive. Um, I know that I can phone them up and they'll do their, their very best to help me out and give me the information I need. What I'd say to people who ask about goat meat, why you eat goat meat, what does it taste like? Well, goat meat tastes very different to different people. Um, and obviously different cuts will taste slightly different. My most popular cut is diced because it just lends itself to spices and oh, it's, it's so beautiful, it's tender and tasty. And really really delicious for me if some people say it tastes quite gamey um, other people say it's um, like quite like lamb for me it tastes like lamb and the best roast beef you'll ever have so go out and try Scottish goat meat it's fantastic and you will be helping a small producer one route to market for her produce is through Glasgow Food Assembly and it's thanks to Geraldine Pitt the assembly host that we have this interview We'll have a link to the Food Assembly on our Facebook. One of the multitude of growing related activities our regular contributor Hannah is involved with is volunteering at a primary school in Ellington Castle, South London. We hear from Hannah here, as well as teachers Susie Gregor and Rachel Fullwood, and new contributor Alice Holden. They all come together to explain how the school get the children engaged with growing and thinking about food. And you're going to be really good for Hannah, aren't you? Yeah, Hannah! Yeah. Like Rose, Rose.
volunteering for just over a year. I thought it would be for six months, but actually I liked it. I like it so much that I want to try and keep coming. It's, it's often the best part of my week. There's, there's different bits. We visited the nursery garden, and that was uh, the first area that I sort of reclaimed, as it were, and started to garden productively with flowers and vegetables. So each year I've taken on board another area or another bed. I really always like working with people and I've got a real like enthusiasm for growing so I thought oh maybe this is a good idea to share that and particularly with children but going and watching teachers do their thing and um, keep control of a class and keep them engaged uh, was a big eye-opener for me so I've, I've been learning a lot from them. Most of them don't have gardens. If they do have gardens, it doesn't mean to say that they, they garden in them, but the majority haven't got gardens. So they do appreciate it. I, and I dare I say, I think the children notice more than the adults. They've been getting taller. They've been getting flowers. Now, Go, go, go. Don't snatch, because there's not enough for everyone to try. So if one or three people try, then a lot of people have got to miss out. I don't think it's fair. You're all going to get... She did one. She didn't, because I can see. You're all going to get, like, a chance to do it, OK? But can we appreciate the cuteness, please? Yeah. I've got a newfound respect for teachers, I'd say. I definitely thought it would be easier than it is, and... Um, I also came at it at a way that I thought, yeah, I'm going to get them so excited. So I'd be like, guys, this is Rainbow Child. Isn't it amazing? And then they go, yeah, and run around the playground. And then I'd be like, guys, guys, come back. <laughs> we need to learn about the child and cut it. So Managing I kind of had to learn down to like tone, <laughs> tone that down. And there's Gardening Club, which happens every Wednesday. Um, that's after school. And then now all the year groups have their own planters. So they all have an opportunity to um, engage in, in gardening in their own little plot, as it were. And the teachers plan those activities, and they, they have to plan one every half term. So that's part of our, our um, curriculum now. The children um, connect the growing up with eating. They certainly do in gardening club, yeah. because they pick it and they take it home, and then you, they'll always say, oh, can I eat it now? Can I eat it raw? Or do I have to cook it? Do I have to wash it? So I definitely think they do. And I think, I think that is developing. Yeah. I think if they saw a tin of sweet corn, they might not necessarily make the connections, but that is developing, and certainly with the older children, very much so. And what happens to the produce? Well, at the moment, it's, it's taken home, generally. And the aim is... I mean, e each year we've taken on board something something new so we're probably in about our eighth year I would say so the next thing is that we are actually in this room going to have a kitchen installed so it's going to go back to uh, us having cooks here and and food being cooked on the premises so once we're there Although we do not have the acres that are needed to provide fruit and vegetables for a, a kitchen to feed a, a large primary school like this, we will be able to stop putting stuff into the kitchens. Farmers have had to diversify their farms to you know, uh, survive financially and actually um, I'm saying it more and more often that actually maybe young farmers coming into this, it's so hard to earn a living from farming alone that they have to diversify their skill sets as well and it's, it's, it's great if you can 
have it all centered around growing but sometimes you have to think outside the box yeah. rather than being a farmer the I've, whole time I, I you know I do loads of different jobs um they're all centered around growing but some of them are doing media things uh teaching training growing working in schools I'm keen to try as many different things as possible I uh, but I feel like you have to be an entrepreneur now if you want to get into growing which is cool because it suits me and I'm in but it's difficult as well. Um, farmers say similar things about yeah, keeping their farms going, you, you know, starting other businesses alongside. Um, so you have to be able to diversify your income streams as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> Creepy crawlies is always a mixed thing. Some love them. Mm-hmm. and some scream but one thing i would definitely say since we have been gardening with more of a, you know a variety of of flora yeah. and we've had more insects coming in the children are less screamy than they used to be and it's less of oh everything's a fly yeah you know we've started to sort of say oh well actually that's you know it's not a fly that one's a bee one's that one's a, a wasp that one's a yes. yeah yeah so it's their karma I have asked a few of the kids as I'm sort of like doing jobs and they all enjoy the garden. I'm going to say all, the majority. They do notice the different flowers. They notice vegetables growing in strange places. You know, they, lo- they appreciate the variety and there's just so much to look at. Every week they'll come out with something that I, you know, haven't even thought about. They notice things, they're excited about things and... It just I really love it when they become like competent and they just casually walk past oh yes carrot you know no big deal and I just think if we want people to care about you know the, the future then this is a great way to start because I just don't think people care about plant skills that much even though we need plants to live in a major way food oxygen you know flood prevention it's critical to the future, but people consider it just like a, I don't know, a nicer side, if you can be good at, at, like with plants. Thank you to everybody at John Ruskin Primary School for showing us round, and thanks to Alice who recorded these interviews. Alice is the lead grower at Dagenham Farm, and we'll be hearing more from her over the coming months. And now for something a little different. We have some recordings from a poetry competition which has got people thinking creatively about the food they eat. The slam was run by Hammer and Tongue Bristol in partnership with Bristol Food Connections. Here's Sarah McCready with a poem about roast dinners and the people you eat meals with. And thanks to Jane Kilpatrick who sent in these, this, uh, this recording.
still appreciating the simplicity, the ice particle symphony of a mini milk. <laughs> Fat burritos, pink juice pulp, hot dog sweat, swallowing music with a packet of quavers, cheeseburgers and relish on knuckles, walks home cradling hot chips like they were your firstborn. Candy floss, your teeth sending to nothing and chilling in Bristol with a blueberry muffin. Finding paradise in a back alley with a stuffy nose and curry house spices. Wallace and Gromit went to the moon just for some cheese and I followed them. Joanna Terry are farmers who have embarked on an ambitious no-till, herbal lay and mob grazing experiment on their farm, inspired by books such as Grass Soil Hope by Courtney White and by visits to pioneers of these techniques in the United States. This combination of methods has allowed them to move away from conventional high-input farming to running a farm where the fields are flourishing, soils regenerating and running at a profit for the first time in years. I joined John, along with the Future Farm Lab team, and his herd of course, for a tour of some of his fields. Well, they've never seen so many people, they're very excited. <laughs> yeah, we planted this field for 20 years and it, it got progressive. Well, we, it, I mean, we, we planted it for 20 years, it's been ploughed for hundreds of years before that. It just got a little bit worse. It was horrible yellow clay and it got a bit worse, more difficult every year and we didn't think there was anything we could do about it. We thought we had to keep ploughing it. You just got more bigger and bigger machines to break, break it down after the plough and plant the crop. The crops got worse and worse. Hopefully we've broken the cycle now by not disturbing it and the soil organic matter's getting in there. And it's, 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 the soil's getting darker and... Um, which is a good sign that there's carbon being locked up in it and it's getting much more water attentive and manageable and full of wormholes and yeah, getting better all the time. How we like it. This field was full of black grass and it's very much lacking organic matter so we put it into this herbal lay three years ago and we put a very rudimentary fence around and a kind of temporary water tank in. And then we've, we've been mob grazing it. And the cattle were in here about um, two weeks ago, those ones we've just seen, and just took the top off it. And then we'll let it grow off again. And, it'll, and that's, um, this chicory will grow sort of six feet tall and be covered in blue flowers. It, it looks fantastic. But, uh, do you ever harvest the chicory? Well, the cows do it for us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In mob grazing, a method that was made popular by Ellen Savory, you can use electric fencing or temporary fencing to keep animals in specific parts of the field. This practice mimics how animals would behave out in the wild on vast grasslands. But it doesn't come without its challenges. 
Yeah, in, in this climate, the grass spends all winter not growing, and then it suddenly starts growing in so March, April time. And about this time of year, it does maximum grow. Come about June, July, it stops growing. And then you have another little dip in... Um, another little peak in sort of September time, you get the autumn rains. So it's all about um, managing that uneven wave of growth so that you've got... Um, um, food for them all year round and they don't grow they don't grow quite as quickly as animals that get um, a bit of grain in their diet so some of the two-year-old ones like that black one <laughs> are really quite small when they carve but they're, they're oh do shut up what is it So, I mean, I think it's all about just looking at what your ground does, what you, what happens in your climate, and adapting. It's, you know, there's no point trying to fight nature. You might as well go with it. There's no real C4 plants native here, so but it's, a, it's an opportunity. This ground would have been sprayed before uh, we drilled it with, with Roundup to kill any weeds and volunteer wheat coming up and I think that's probably it so it's had some fertiliser and that's it so it's like a... this is a major challenge of no-till how to remove the cover crop before you plant the beans or wheat or whatever as you heard John currently uses weed killer there is no clear answer to this conundrum most organic farmers still till the soil to avoid this issue but not tilling the soil can return lots of fertility and trap beneficial carbon in the soil. We're on the cusp of so many exciting things happening in farming, and it's like uh, the tendency is to be miserable as hell because everybody wants things to change without them having to, um, to make any changes. Most farmers have stopped farming. You know, now they, 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 no, they. They, they physically do it, yeah. but, but someone else tells them what to do yeah. the whole they time. And they, they get a, you get a menu of, of this is, you know, you plant this on this, in between these two dates, and then you spray it with this, and then you spray it with that, and then you apply some fertilizer, you spray it with something else, yeah. and then you combine it when it's ready, and you sell it to this person yeah. over here. What I find exciting about John is that he was a conventional farmer, but has gradually moved away from using chemicals and artificial inputs towards more natural and agroecological methods. It's understandable that many farmers running on tight margins to support their families are hesitant to make the jump into the unknown. Joanna talked us through her experience. When the accountant came to do the, um, which, which they do uh, end-of-year accounts, he's really cynical about this whole no-till business. He kept saying, I don't understand, actually. You are in the, the top, say, 5% of farmers in the country in terms of making money, but it's just because there's so few costs, because mm -hmm. the costs are so low, because of the lack of chemical sprays, the lack of diesel being used mm -hmm. and all the rest of it, and, and machinery being upkept and all the rest of it. And so he then realised that this was actually financially viable. It was a year when a lot of people had made a lot more, had had, had a lot higher yields who'd been ploughing, mm -hmm. um, and, and their farm wasn't, and this farm wasn't yet... Um, getting such high yields. Right. And so it, they had assumed it was going to be a bad 
yeah, for profits. And so everybody was surprised. Mm-hmm. And the farmer kept saying, oh, this is just probably uh, a blip. And almost certainly this won't carry on. And then last year when he came back, he had to say again, well, actually, I don't quite understand why this is the case, but it looks as though, again, it's working rather well for you, but it might not work next year. It, it immediately made John very positive because it made it much easier to convince other people. So people who farm in the next door farms are also have gone no till as a result really? of this. Yes. So it, it because that does speak to farmers. I mean, the bottom line is what people are interested in because they don't want to take risks. There really is a, a, um, a profit aspect to this, which mm-hmm. which makes it sensible to do irrespective of any kind of um, other reasons. John and Joanna have put together an all-day event, Groundswell, on June 30th on their farm in Hertfordshire, so fellow farmers and the public can come and see for themselves. Yes, so the, the Groundswell show, is, is, it, it started off as an idea of just getting all the people who, who, are, who are doing no-till together to, for a celebration and, and sharing ideas and, and exploring new ideas, new ways of doing things, but also... It's an opportunity for people who are thinking of getting into, of changing their system and giving them the opportunity to, um, to find out how to do it and to, to see us making a meal of what we do and, 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 and have a look at land that's been in no-till. Because a lot, a lot of people have never come across it. I've, I'm just very excited about it and I'm, I'm very glad, grateful to the people who showed us what they were doing and we're just passing that... Um, that joy on to the, <laughs> to the to uh, anybody else who's interested. And so the daytime events will all be geared towards active farmers, and in the evening we've got a uh, Charles Dowding, who's a great no-dig gardening specialist, to talk to any local gardeners who want to experiment with uh, not digging their garden but growing just as many things. And uh, Jill Clapperton, the great um, soil scientist from America, will be explaining to non-farmers the benefits of all these ways of looking after the soil to the planet and to, to their food um, and to the future of farming and all the possibilities for hopefully any, any, any members of the public can come along to that. So thanks Abby for that report. Nigel, what do you think about this? Till, till when? Would, could you be uh, tempted to jump on the no-till bandwagon? Um, yes, in short. I think, I think it's something that we'd, we'd love to try on the farm. Um, so then what about adding in this mob grazing aspect? Because you obviously have cows and sheep yeah. on your land. Would you ever consider taking that on? Or why haven't you adopted it yet? From, from you know, farms I visited where they're implementing mob grazing, they've seen you know, big, a big increase in the sort of productivity of the grass, like the lays coming back stronger, and just generally, you know, producing more grass from the same um, area of, of land. So mm-hmm. it kind of seems a no-brainer, really. And why now? Why is this stuff getting attention now? Why has this not been done 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like 100 years ago? What is it about this current moment that, that we're hearing more and more of people talking about both of these techniques? You know, in the last, whatever, 60, 70 years, uh, high-input farming became the norm. And so people were putting loads of nitrogen fertilizers on their fields and just using every chemical possible because 
it was producing high yields and it seemed to be making more money. But then in the last, I don't know how long, maybe 20, 25, 30 years, that's been on the de decline. Um, and people are actually getting lower yields from their land and they're having to pay for these high inputs still and not getting the same rewards. Broken the soil. Really ravaged the earth and need to look to something new. And what I think is interesting about John is that he, you know, he's not organic. So he hasn't got, you know, he doesn't have that aspect to what he's doing, but he's taken some steps that really are helping to become more agroecological in his ways. And, and for me, that's inspiring to see conventional farmers moving across because 95% of farmers in the UK are conventional. Mm -hmm. So that to me is really exciting. So, come on, Nigel, can we get a commitment from you to try all this mm. and we'll follow, follow the journey <laughs> on Farmer Long over the next Yeah, year. I, I think um, in, in the next uh, six to 12 months, you, we, could, we could sort of pilot something. So, That's cool. Yeah. That'd be really cool to follow yeah. the journey. Yeah, with our Sussex cattle, I think, yeah. They'd be quite well suited to it. So, yeah. Now to close the show, we have another poem from the Bristol Poetry Slam. All the recordings you've heard today a part of a national competition leading up to a final at the Royal Albert Hall. And to find out more, head to our Facebook page where we'll have the links to everybody who's involved. We'll be back next month, but until then, here's Danny Pandolfi to send us off with his experience of giving up meat. So I stopped eating meat. Thought it was the right time. For if I tried, it might not be so hard, see? When you've been forced to give up the things you love in the past, that choice can be liberating. So I consider waiting, but sizzling bacon. That smell as a meat permeates everything, even permeates has meat in it, but I've set a deadline and I'm beating it. I want to feel the same when spring rolls into summer. And in case there isn't long to go, I want to know what's best. They say it's like going from solid gold to monochromes instead, but I'm no pushover. And now it's like I'm on a roll with veg, I take out one, then goes the rest, like the domino effect. I try to pervade this life with me. From frying steaks to dicing beef, it's like a game of hide and seek inside a James's giant peach bar. Then I like the taste, it's kind to me. Not quite the same, but nice and sweet, lost mine away, and I'm flying free, those frightened states inside me leave. Which got me thinking about the wider issues in this. And why the issues persist? Can we change belief systems like diet plans? With the speediness that lightning can see the easiness of climate plans and greediness of private lands. Change elitism is just like ingredients in frying pans. So now how would I feel if I gave up the fight? As I think of all those great people who gave up their rights and the comparatively few things I gave up in life, but then just a few months ago, I almost gave up on life, and ever since then I've been looking for a purpose and a reason. Searching for a meaning in the earth and in its creatures, not that person here for preaching on the perks of being vegan, no. not a sermon or a teaching, this is personal achievement. Sometimes it takes one strike to make mountain steps ironic. When you give up some rights, you can take down what's left, and as I think of collectivism, no bizarre. How there's no Iron Man like Tony Stark, feminism, Simone de Beauvoir, Wollstonecraft, Joan of Arc, and Rosa Parks. How none of them ever gave a stone to cost. Whether the length of a shoulder arm, we've kept them to pose apart. We treat them gold and keep them close to our chest like a poker card, food and mind. The two combined 
two things I've struggled with through my life. People ask me, are you joking me? You don't behave like you ain't coping great, plus you ain't fat or skinny, I said. You can be low on shape without being overweight, plus mentality governs and controls your states. I was given dominion over the meats. But for what spiritual meaning? Because remember, there's an opposite in every biblical teaching. Morale and morals are intrinsically linked in the choices we make and the things that we're eating. And I realized, 40 days of fasting isn't 40 days of starving. This isn't biblical. You can desert an extra meal and leave the devil cross. Is that a sign I should be mounting strategies to get to God, which lends me the ease to give up and strength to stop to write freely and not allow this pen to cost? And can spirituality link to animals eating? Can callousness weaken through pacifist treatment? I guess this is just another challenge for me than like Adam and Eve with the apple of Eden with the strength and the vow of a marriage agreement where I can live happily free or be banished for treason like a Catholic heathen. See if the feud, the food, I'm a slaver. What are the fruits of my labor? Now I no longer feel like my tooth is a saber, more like the brooms in Fantasia. Reciprocating blissful traits through what you do to your neighbor, if that's being human in nature, then was Judas a traitor? Was Brutus a traitor? So I don't have to stand here and act like you need a savior. I'm just a student of nature, searching for beautiful flavor. These are the fruits of my labor. <laughs>